Arteta! What a No, no, seriously, we're doing a podcast about football. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. We're doing a podcast about football. I don't care. There's no football. It seems unnecessary. Uh, someone tweeted at me today, and um, and I, 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 he meant it not like abusively. I, I think it was meant to be sarcasm, but he said, what is the point of your pod, even from a comedy perspective, apart from superficial inanities, what do you discuss? And I want to be clear, superficial inanities was the original title of this podcast, uh, before we changed it to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Um, but yeah, it is superficial inanities, but my hope is that they become a distraction at a time when we could use them. Uh, what I want to say before we start and before I introduce Tim and Clive momentarily is that I hope wherever you are, you are doing well. These are challenging times. I have uh, personally suffered some loss in my life just recently, which is not awesome. And, um, you know, we're we're about to get a shelter-in-place order from our state where I live these are evolving times, interesting times. I know in the UK, there's been an interesting announcement made today. So wherever you are, I hope you're not getting overwhelmed by the, um, by the. I want to say hysteria. It's not hysteria. It's certainly uh, important to to be aware of what's going on right now. But I, ho- I hope you're keeping your head up, that you're, you're finding reasons to be optimistic and upbeat. And, and hopefully we can all provide that for one another. I have to say a personal thanks to everybody, you know, in the Discord who's who's helped me keep my head up at a hard time. And so to those of you listening, if this is even some measure of support or help or distraction, great. If it is not, <laughs> well, we're here anyway. We're in your ears, baby. You can't stop us now. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello. Did a, a Patreon pod with Scott, so he he was on there and he'll be on here again. And Paul's just having a really hard time with uh, work related issues I, I guess the f- mere fact that he is working uh is is positive so you know good for him um but uh he will be back of course at a on a pod in the near future and with that having been said uh, let's dive into the news of the day you know before we dive into the news of the day let me just ask my friends uh tim how are you how are you holding up how's how's dev how's everything yeah not too bad not too bad i uh i Finished my seven-day period of isolation on Thursday. I went to the local supermarket, and I am ready to self-isolate some more. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> after after that experience, so yeah, all good, all good. I imagine you're an expert at it. And Clive, are you uh, are you holding up, stocked up the liquor cabinet? My my wife and I have been texting back and forth. We're about to get a shelter-in-place order, and she texted me, and this is why I love her. She said, "On my way to the liquor store." So you know. That that tells you about my. Yeah, I've started, How's it going there? I've started drinking rum again. Good, but smart. I'm sure that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the drinking is is continuing, but to be to be fair, the social drinking is not there. So I'm actually on a drink diet because when you go to the pub, it's slightly different, isn't it? So having a couple of drinks at home is nothing in comparison. So it's just a a quiet time. Work is still going. Um, I miss my uh, workmates in Bristol. Where I work a lot. And, um, I miss those guys, but um, I can work from home just as effectively. So I'm fortunate as long as the priorities stay as they are. Um, if they change, they change. And, you know, that's just life. We have to move on. Yeah. No, I get speaking it. Speaking of ahead. the mm-hmm. – uh, I was just going to say, speaking of the drinking thing, did anyone see the, the tweet from Tyrone Mings today, which which I found very funny? <laughs> what was uh, it? <laughs> so so there's, um, there's a brilliant account called Footballers with Tits. Yes. And uh, – yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that. So you have a mug from them, know, don't you? 
I don't, but I who, should. Who do. has the mug? Someone uh, has a. Is it? Is it Bird Camp with tits or Tyrion? Is it James or Andrew? Someone. Someone has it. That's for sure. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's just an account that does like these really crude, like comic book style drawings of footballers just with breasts, and uh, and they did one of Tyrone Mings <laughs> and just standing there with you know with uh, a nice rack on him. And uh, Tyrone Mings quote tweeted it and said, this will be uh, a true to life drawing by the time I get back to training, which, um, which, <laughs> Touché. which, which I found quite amusing. Yeah. That may dovetail nicely with, um, with our, the second part of our conversation today. And, uh, yeah, I, my colleagues, I mean, I, I get what you're, where you're coming from, Clyde, about missing your work colleagues. I am fortunate enough that I have continued to see them. In fact, I, um, I actually shared a bed with all of my co, uh, office workers last night, as weird as that sounds, um, I actually share it with them every night because they are three cats and a dog. So we all slept together last night, as we will again tonight. Um, all right, enough about me and my um, pet-related activities. There, there really is a little bit of Arsenal news, and so we should cover it. And I think it will be somewhat divisive and argumentative and polarizing and all the fun things and, that, that we've forgotten in the absence of football. So let's get down to it. Headline, the byline is James McNicholas and David Ornstein. Exclusive. Arsenal lose analytics guru to Arsene Wenger at FIFA. Jason uh, Rosenfels, who oversees StatDNA, is off to join Arsene. Uh, he is a man who was involved in the selection of Emery, but critically, in his <laughs> to his credit, he was also a man who apparently was critically involved in not letting Emery get a contract renewal. I, I want to say this. I, I consider James a friend, at least an online friend, and, and I have huge regard for David Ornstein. This article is written, certainly with a perspective that is very... Um, complementary to Rosenfeld and StatDNA. It mirrors a lot of things I have heard from people in the analytics community about how, how highly he is, he is thought of. It references a, a lot of sort of good things that StatDNA and Rosenfeld have done for Arsenal without necessarily pointing them specifically. Um, and there have been some signings that have been associated with or, or attributed to StatDNA that you would say are questionable to say the least. Guys like El Elneny, guys like Mustafi. I don't know that we know that that's true. I don't know that we know what they do. I think the fact that we don't have a lot of information on what they've specifically been involved in or helped with, we don't know the good things they've achieved, we've been sort of presented some of the bad things they're connected with. So it is very hard, I think, to have a conversation about stat DNA because you're basing it on information that is a lot of conjecture. This article certainly makes it sound like it's not just Rosenfeld leaving, but that stat DNA and analytics in general will be de-emphasized so that Raul and his relationship-related approach, his agent relationship-related approach can take more of a prominent role at the club. So having laid out that framework and talked far more than I should or anyone wanted to, I will now turn it over to you, Tim, and say, first and foremost, before we get into what this means for how the club will operate going forward, to what extent, mm -hmm. if any, are you able to assess what kind of a loss Rosenfeld would be? And do you have an opinion of stat DNA and what they've done at the club? <clears throat> Um, so not a really strong one because obviously it's it's very like behind the scenesy kind of work, and the thing is I'm quite a big believer that most footballers, particularly most footballers that a club like Arsenal will buy, are not bad footballers. Um, you know when when you're when you're at that kind of level, everyone you buy is really good. Okay, um, 
it then becomes a case of how you use them, how you scouted them, what you saw in them, how you use them. And we, like, you know, as an example, we're seeing that let's compare how Unai Emery used Granite Xhaka and even Arsene Wenger used Granite Xhaka to how Mikel Arteta uses Granite Xhaka. Um, just as an example, like every player you buy is a good player. It's just a question of whether he fits or not. And that's where, that's where the doubt is over Arsenal's recruitment, right? Have they been buying players that fit? The, I mean, the answer looks to me like no, particularly, you know, like the signing of Nicola Pepe, for example, and countless others over the last three to four years. We've bought who people who are objectively good players, but we just haven't had a purpose or a tactical fit, or we've bought the player and then thought about the role afterwards. And I guess there's the question then is to what extent is that a coaching issue and to what extent is that a recruitment issue? Um, I mean, it's all recruitment issue ultimately, but uh, to what extent is that a talent issue, I guess? And, and it's really difficult to get a read on that because, you know, someone like Lucas Perez, for example, used better. He might have been a really good signing. He's clearly not a bad player. You know, he's not elite, but he was bought to be backup and he could have been decent backup. And actually, this team is probably screaming out for, um, you know, a wide player that scores goals, a wide player that operates a bit like a striker. So if we'd bought him, I mean, I know he's a bit older now, but, you know, basically, if you buy players in different circumstances, they can do different things. And we've spoken in recent weeks, for example, about how. Theo Walcott would be fucking dynamite in this team at the moment because we don't have a player like that. Um, and, and even Olivier Giroud is probably more suited to Arsenal now than he ever was when we had him. Um, so there, there's all of these kind of questions baked in. So I, don't, I, I guess I don't believe necessarily that Stat DNA, DNA has been identifying bad footballers. You know, even Elneny. Elneny was £10 million and... I don't think anyone, least of all Arsenal, thought when they made that signing, oh, this is like a transformational signing for Arsenal Football Club. I think they thought, OK, we need another central midfielder, probably to play a bit of a squad role. He looks all right and he doesn't cost too much and that's kind of fine. And, and so, for example, the signing of Mohamed Elneny, to me, it's fine. We bought him as backup. We've used him largely as backup. We'll sell him. We'll get some money back. Life goes on. Like that is not that is not a bad signing, even though it's not a show-stopping signing. That the bad signings are like thirty-five million on Mustafi. That's a bad signing because that's a big investment on a fairly flawed player. But again, it comes down to whether that's a coaching issue or whether that's a talent issue. I tend to think, to be honest, it's probably more of a coaching issue because a lot of these players. You know, again, this is a bit chicken or egg. Have the club failed because the players have failed or are the players failing because the club is failing? I, I mean, I, I tend to think that then that they're not bad footballers that we've identified. It's just what we've had in the last few years. We've had Wenger very much on the decline. And then we've had Unai Emery, who just wasn't really a great fit for Arsenal. And I, I don't think he's really a good fit for a club of, of our profile, let alone our makeup. So I think there are a lot of coaching issues baked in there, to be honest. I tend to think that that's where I would think most of the focus is. And it's not a massive coincidence that a lot of these players suddenly look not necessarily like world beaters, but they look a bit better. 
um, with with a more structured approach that we've seen under Arteta. So, I mean, I can't say that this guy is, or or even stat DNA DNA overall is, you know, is is amazing and brilliant. But I have my doubts as to it being terrible, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I, I think the issues are probably more on the coaching side than anything. And, you know, I, I guess it depends to what extent they've been doing what they're told and to what extent they've actually led the recruitment strategy. Um, and, you know, someone like Pepe, for example, was that stat DNA saying, no, put this guy in the team. He's what we need. Or was that the club going, uh, we need a winger and he's kind of available and we can get him. Um, I, again, I kind of have my doubts around that. So I, I'm i not convinced that Stat DNA uh, are incompetent. I think there are other things going on. That's that's my, my read on it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I want to, do you mind if I just excerpt some things real quick from this article? I, you know, I certainly, you know, we we support The Athletic and I don't want to just rip off the reporting. I just want to excerpt a few things here. Um, Because, you know, the way this is written, like, for example, he says, Wenger embraced Rosenfeld's data-led approach. Stat DNA were credited with significant roles in various signings and played a key part in helping inform Arsenal's selection. Um Rosenfeld software gave Wenger access to data on games all around the world, ways of tracking trajectory of players, and allowed him to analyze whether the team were performing above or below where they should be at any given point. Look, data is a tool, like any tool. You can give me a shovel. It doesn't mean I'm going to dig a great hole. You can give me analytics. It doesn't mean I'm going to build a good team. I guess the question is, like, over the period they've been here, can we see areas where we sort of beat the market? I mean, look, Liverpool's ascension has been closely connected to and tied to the use of analytics. And this is where I want to plant my flag really quick, Clyde, before I let you in here, because we're like 13 minutes into the podcast and you haven't spoken a word. But um, just because analytics are used poorly somewhere doesn't mean analytics are discredited. I mean, obviously everyone's seen the the movie um, or read the book, Moneyball. Uh, great movie, great book. You know, analytics transformed baseball. First at the Oakland A's, then at the Boston Red Sox, who won a World Series for the first time in 100 years or whatever it was. Um, they are transforming the NFL. And they are indeed transforming Premier League football and, and European football generally. And, and Liverpool have benefited from that. You can be good at it and you can be bad at it. I think what is less clear at Arsenal is how much it was implemented, although this article suggests that Wenger really embraced it, and the fact that Wenger is hiring Rosenfeld for a job at FIFA suggests that maybe he did embrace it, which then begs the question, was it well applied? Did it work? Did it do much? I mean... Clive, that's the question for me. I mean, can you look at anything we've done over the past few years and say, I can point to this as an incident where data improved us? I mean, the article says that data was used to help uh, track which players, you know, needed to rest more, train more, you know, with, with trying to avoid injury, with lineups. They had 20-page reports on matchups, which I'm sure Emery spunked over, but that's another story. Um, I mean, to, to you, when you just look at it from an outside perspective— do you see evidence of analytics having been impactful at Arsenal? Uh, well, it's a tough one, right? So well, everything I say now is caveated by the fact that we do not understand the the percentile by which that DNA are involved with recruitment. We don't know anything about our recruitment model. We don't really know who was involved in some of the decisions that we can suspect. That's a changing model, so we're not sure how it's done today. Um, so in the end, it comes down to, Tim called it a 
coaching problem. I say it's a, a people problem and an implementation problem. So when you have data, you have to apply that data to solve a problem. So you use or, or drive, use that data to drive a data-driven decision. So a good example is our nanny, which I think it cost about six, seven million actually. But And at that time when we bought him, I think he was in the top three players in the Champions League for kilometres covered in a game. And at that time, we could we could do a player like that for six, seven million pounds. When we saw him in action, what we saw was a player that maybe lost confidence with forward passing. He had a few long shots before he came to us. Suddenly, we didn't see much of that when he arrived because the new environment maybe swallowed up a little bit more. And then we saw something else. Yes, he may be able to cover a lot of kilometres, but his sprinting speed isn't really good. So you come back to it, you say to yourself, statistics are one thing, but the human eye is another thing and what you see in the player. You said, you quote Liverpool there earlier, you quote um, obviously what they're doing, but what they're doing is they're adding players onto a solid base, a solid way of playing, a, a strategy and a philosophy based on intensity, fitness and speed. So first things first, they've got to be fast, got to be quick, got to be intense. And then you're adding the nuance on top of that. So when Arsenal are buying players, you look at their recruitment strategy player-wise over the last five years, say. I think they bought Stat DNA in 2014. Mm. So since then, what's that, six, seven years? Can you see a strategy of any form in that time? Can you, can you, you just can't. We've, we've had a reactive strategy based on inefficient use of contracts, situation where we were against the wall, we had to replace players very, very quickly. And so you're not maximizing the fact that we had our own proprietary data since 2014. Yeah. Everyone's got data now. They've got access to data. So it comes down to how you tune that data and uh, give it to people that understand the game and understand how to use it. Now, we're fortunate we had a consistency of coaching staff, and Venga was involved in the purchase of Stat DNA. And maybe, I'm not sure if I read somewhere, in the giving um, that Jason guy a prominent position in the club. So obviously, he embraced it. So what? It doesn't matter. The proof's in the pudding, isn't it? The proof's in the pudding. When you're, when you're embracing it and you're buying players, which I feel are not understanding where Arsenal used to be, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you have players that are allowed to stay too long while offering not enough. That comes down to your people decisions, your 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 decisions on people that you've seen and how much time you're prepared to give them and how much time you do not give others. I saw something the other week. It's a great article in The Athletic and talking about the under-23 team that Arsenal had a few years ago. In that team, they had Benassia, they had the Jeff, they had um, Donnell Malin. It just went, it just reeled off a lot of these names. They had Josh De Silva. I think it was Josh De Silva article actually, mm. and they, they reeled off these names. And you're thinking, crikey, I wouldn't mind some of these players back. But you have this ability to recruit young talent. You have this ability to train young talent, and you don't use information that you have for your own database to see and project where they could be. You don't have a contract situation where you loan players for an elongated period of time. You don't have a situation where you 
you may have used statistics to find these young gems around the world initially, but you're not smart enough to make sure you have a buyback in their contract going forward. It's just not. So for me, stats is one thing, but people is another. Having smart information and adding smart people is where we need to go. Now, they dropped this line in there. I won't go on too much here. I, want, I hope we're going to take the conversation a little bit more. We have this line in there that says we're moving towards a contract, um, contract-based recruitment policy. And I, I think that's a bit of a bomb line, right? So, Because every single team has data now. Yeah. We're not unique. So don't make out that we're just throwing a database in the bin. I'm just going to get the black book out and take people out for uh, a steak, Diane, and see what they got in their in their black book. It's, 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 I think it's quite demeaning. Well, well, this was where we, I was going to go next. So, so can I kind of ask you a question that leads you to where yes, you're going? Please, please. Just, just to sort of focus the conversation because I'm with you. I just want to um, get this out so that I can hear my voice again. Um, uh, <laughs> like the the inference from the article, and again, by the way, love James, love David, great reporting. Glad they're doing it. These are questions I have. This isn't a criticism of the, art, of the article, but the inference from the reporting, and it, it's sort of stated, is that the preference now is to go towards Raul's agent relationship-driven model. And this this neatly joins up with a narrative that's starting to build around the club that's like, hey, we're just a plaything for Kia Drabchian and other you know, super agents and stuff. So like, do you... Like, yes, of course there will continue to be analytics, but... Is it a valid concern that we will be less able to find the hidden gems? And you could argue, well, shit, have we found any hidden gems? I mean, that, that's a debate for another time. Like, there's a debate for another time about whether the analytics worked and whether we could make the analytics work. But one thing that's clear, Clive, is we're on a trajectory where our revenue is declining and our advantage economically is deteriorating. And so we have to be able to outsmart the market a bit. And so do you see this transition like Jason leaving isn't the end of the world, but if the transition is genuinely towards Raul and relationships playing a bigger role in an environment where our economic advantage is waning, is this a perfect storm for us to 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 go through a decline, to struggle? Uh, I think. Um, hey, look, I think you need both. You know, in the end, when you find somebody, you have to talk to somebody, and then, and you have to have relationships to allow you to understand what situation that individual player. Where is he? What's his What's his passport look like? What's his contract situation? How can we get him in? How can we assimilate him into our environment? So there's, there's many, many different aspects to recruiting a player. It's not just only agent related. You have to have the information to even know the player exists. Sometimes an agent can point to somebody. So it's all linked to also, and the thing we're not really talking about is scouting. Our scouting network, what the quality of that is. You know, and we can debate that over the previous years. That's being rebuilt right now. When you see things, there's a Swedish six-year-old we linked with the other day. That gives me a little bit of heart, actually, that we're still there at the the leading edge of the new young players that are coming through. But why have to why have to remind everybody? And I will say this: there are no secrets anymore in the game. If a player does well, even at non-league. The teams are looking at them. It's a good point. Yep. You know, you know we, I'm involved in a non-league club. We've had league clubs come to look at our top scoring striker this year. We have a young centre-back who's 18. is absolutely outstanding. We've had three or four league clubs come to look at him. And he's an 18-year-old playing in step four football. You know, there are no secrets. As soon as someone plays well, 
everyone's all over it. Yeah, but between FB Ref and a, and a subscription to Y Scout, like I could compile, a, you know, if I had a good eye, I could, could compile a pretty good list of of targets, you know. Yeah, I bet you could. And the people listening to this podcast are screaming that they're divided right now, saying, "Yes, I know all the players." Oh, trust me. Well, I I, I post out YouTube's on players. Yeah, and so everybody comes back and says to me, "Clive, what about this player? What about that player?" I've never heard of him. Some of the knowledge of the people that are oh shit, go into the transfer listen. channel of our Discord and and people are like, "What do you think of this guy?" And I, I just have to nakedly admit, I've literally never heard of him until you typed his name just now. exactly and some i've heard of and some i i tried to learn about a little bit later i give my opinion after i've watched them a few times but it's incredible the amount of talents out there and everybody knows about them honestly mate there is nothing you can't get under 13 doing well playing for anywhere in in an academy without everybody turning up the week after to nick him before he's 14 to get him into your academy it's the scouting network that pulls these players in. The statistics, I think, well, I think statistics are being used a lot more. I saw some, a great article on um, the young um, Juventus midfielder, Bentacore, and I looked at this article this week in that scouted football magazine, and they were talking about things like defensive pressures and the different categories that you get. I think it's using stats. Uh, stats data from, from Fred's database, right? So, and basically, I'm thinking... This is the way to pick a player. It's about educated scouting. You scout, you see the information, you break him down, and you see that continuity over a period of time. You have to have data to do that. And then once you have that player identified, then it's how can you get them? You know, and how can you get people out? And that's where the contacts come in. It's not always getting players in. It's getting people out at the right number. And we seem to forget that. And we're not very good at that. You know, we have not been very good at that because we haven't had the relationships in place and people have been taking us for a ride. Right? So when you have agents involved, you can protect your revenue streams in the transfer market a little bit better, we hope. But also, I know Tim's there thinking, yeah, but we might have to take a few suckers just to make sure we get the good ones. And he's absolutely right. But that's business. Right, and how you manage that is how you manage your your income and your waste spend, etc. Well, Tim, let let me ask you to sort of counter that or agree with that, whichever you do. I mean, I would I would mm. say you can point to a club like Liverpool, which has found a way to do business with super agents. I mean, it's not like they don't have star players, but has used analytics to build a juggernaut. Um, mm. And then you can contrast that with a club like Manchester United, who I I so. I've heard two rumors. One is that they use a dart board. The other is that they use a Ouija board. So I'm not sure which they're doing, but it seems like it's, you know, super agent gets drunk and recommends a player to United <laughs> and they buy him. So like, uh, again, and, and I agree with a lot of what Clive's saying. I think it is sort of silly to pretend, um, silly to pretend <laughs> that our club is now just going to talk to agents and not look at data and be like, nah, 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 I can't hear you and put their fingers in their ears. But like, mm. is this... Is this a time, especially, and I'll reiterate, given our, our fall in revenue and our weakening e- economic position where you have to take every advantage? And this is the thing I think people don't get, just real quick, Tim. I think people think of analytics as like a magic bullet. You use analytics like you use, you know, a, to use an unfortunate metaphor right now, like a, 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 a antibiotic or something, you know, like that it, you use it and it works. Mm. It's a tool in your toolbox, right? It's something you can add yeah, to yeah. your overall view of the market and and team building to sort of make more informed decisions. So, 
I mean, does moving away from it worry you? Are, do you think we even will move away from it? How much of the, where where do we separate the hysteria from the reality, which is probably a question that could be applied to a lot of things right now? Yeah. So, I mean, the the way I understand um, the application, like the sensible application of, uh, of, of data and data analytics is you use the data to narrow the field effectively. So, and, and this is what Sven Mislintat did, as far as I understand it. He kept the data and then he'd say, you know, we want, a, a, for example, the, the story about how we got Lucas Torreira. We want a player like N'Golo Kante. I'm going to run the numbers and see who does broadly the same things that N'Golo Kante does. Mm. And then I'm going to go and find those players. And last summer, we had a, a, a great pod. Um, on this podcast with Alex Stewart, I doubt it. right? Oh, from no, Tifo yeah, that Football. was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> and uh, and and that's the way that Alex and Tifo do a lot of their kind of sensible transfers uh, series. They kind of they punch the numbers, and you know they they would say, for example, ah, who does like broadly the same things that Mo Salah does, and then punch the numbers, and then you get like a short list of players. And then you watch those players. So you do, obviously, you know, you blend the eye test. But the way I understand it is that data analytics just narrows the field for you. It reduces the haystack, right? Because you're looking for needles in haystacks. And what the data will do is blow a massive part of that haystack away for you so that you can you can then start to really refine who you're looking at and, and what you want them to do. And I, I guess the problem for Arsenal is from what I can gather is what they haven't been doing is saying we need this type of player with this type of output. They've kind of just been maybe running data and then looking at players and saying, Oh, he looks good. His data looks good, but without doing that kind of, but does he do the things that this team really needs him to do? You know, let's say, for example, I think we need a goal scoring wide forward. I, th I think that's like a big recruitment gap to fill because um, we keep putting a Bamiyang on the left. And a big part of that is not just a case of accommodating Lacazette. It's because we don't have enough goal-scoring wide players. So the rationalisation, I think, that is made is, well, this is a way of getting a Bamiyang and Lacazette into the team, and they're both goal-scorers. So I don't think it's so much a case of accommodating Lacazette as saying, well, we, we just don't have enough goal-scorers in the team. So this is just a way of getting two of them in and kind of shoehorning them in. So it, it kind of, it's a bit like like um you know are we identifying the data first and then putting you know and then identifying the individuals you know are, are we looking at the the blank spaces in the team and then saying that's what we need we need a guy who does who has these kind of metrics these kind of metrics let's run those metrics let's go watch him play i mean i i, I don't really know um and i guess you know like like what Clive said right about, um, you know, sometimes you've got to take some duds. Mm -hmm. And, yep, you absolutely do. And you could reel off a ton of duds that Wenger took on at low prices. And, you know, it was all kind of fine because, like, most of them didn't hurt us that much. They were cheap gambles. They didn't come off. All right, see you later. We sell you on. But for every, like, Stepanovs, Bischoff... Lushny, well, maybe Lushny doesn't fit into this category, but for Inamoto, for every one of those, you get a Colo Torre for £200,000, completely justified. Same principle as an academy system. 
you know, for you sell a few, most of them won't make it. You sell a few at a good profit and then one or two every couple of years come through and that kind of pays for itself. And it, I, I kind of see recruitment at a certain level in the same way. Obviously, you want your expensive signings to really come off. And that that's where I have the concern. So personally, I am fine with you know, taking a risk on a few youngsters to get a Gabriel Martinelli. That that's fine with me. I think at that like tier of recruitment, I'm kind of fine with what Arsenal are doing. For me, it's the more expensive tier. You know, mm, the Xhaka, yeah. the Mustafi, um, even the Lucas Perez. We paid seventeen million for Lucas Perez. If yeah. we picked him up for five, six million, I think perfect signing. Great. You know, we had him for one season. We played him for some cup games, meant we could rest Alexis. He scored in those cup games. He fucked off. Fine. If that's 10 million less, that is, you know, like Elneny, that's fine. That is absolutely fine as a signing. He filled a gap. He played some cup games. He fucked off. All fine. For me, that isn't the tier that causes me concern with Arsenal. And I'm not... I guess I'd have to match it against other clubs to to make that comparison. For me, it's it's the upper tier. It's the the players we're paying lots of money for, and you can even put Özil into this bracket. You know, for no one's saying that Özil is a bad player. Like far from it, very far from it, and he's done some terrific things. But the question as to whether we've extracted value from Ezra Özil is a debatable one. Some people will say yes, some will say no. The fact that it is a debate is problematic for me and that that's where you really really can't miss and Nicola Pepe is a fantastic example of that you can't miss when you spend that much money and and actually this is I guess this is a historic problem for Arsenal as well because did we get full value for Andre Arshavin maybe not did we get full value from Sylvain Wiltord from Jose Reyes like you look at our record signings there's there's quite a lot of contention over quite a lot of them quite Mm. frankly if you look at like our top five signings of all time even our top six or seven because i'm sure jacker and mustafi come in there like we haven't spent big money well and that to me is is quite a big concern yeah well i i mean well clive why don't you come back in on this and then i because i don't talk too much already i agree with him there and a lot of that started actually you know when we were making superstars rather than buying them we were actually quite good. We had a podcast the other day about the Emirates era, didn't we? And a lot of those players we bought very cheaply. And they by, by the way, that had a lot of good response. I, I'll just say thanks to everyone who voted in that. Um, the little plug-in that I used to collect votes uh, will not spit out a report for me about what the votes looked like. So you can see your individual vote, but I can't tell you who won. Uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll post our results from the podcast up there so you can see them. But I want to thank everyone who voted and 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 interacted with that but i sorry clive i just wanted to let everyone know the reason i haven't ah, released results right. is that um yeah the, the service i used won't give them to me so i you know I, I don't know what to say about that i'll keep digging and see and, what and you and you paid for that service i, I did indeed <laughs> yes i did pay actual money which as we speak is being devalued so yeah it's, it's getting more expensive by the minute yeah yeah, I, I suppose I totally agree with him there. We we haven't spent money well. So since twenty fourteen when we had this new money and we got out of the austerity make do era, we then started to spend and I and I, we just haven't spent well, you know. Some of our better buyers have been, you know, some of the cheaper buyers are bam young aside maybe. But we are where we are. I think for me it's all about how you implement the information that you have 
how you recognize talent and how you're going to use it. And again, there's a great example on um, TIFO football this week about Joel Linton at Newcastle, a player that I saw play for Hoffenheim against Liverpool and apps from the left-hand side in the 4-3-3 and absolutely rinse Virgil van Dijk. Rinse him. I thought, oh my God, this player could be fantastic. Newcastle buy him, stick him up front, 15 miles away from his nearest player. He's got no one to combine with, no one to dribble with, no one-twos. On his own, got to play back to goal, which is not a back-to-goal forward. And basically, there's a player that's spent £40 million on being totally misused. That's what's wrong in the game. You can have data, you can like somebody, then you misuse him when you have him. Now, just say, for example, let's bring it back to Arsenal. Just say next year, we all thought of thinking secretly we might go to 4-3-3 with, a, with three up top, a six and two eights. Right, so, and just say, for example, for sake of discussion, we have a front three of Pepe Wright, Bamiyang, and just say Saka on the left, or Marte, it doesn't really matter. Now, if we're looking to buy a six, there's a few that we all like out there, doesn't really matter. I think we need to buy somebody to play that role. But if we're applying a right eight, that right eight behind Pepe needs to be a more defensive eight, needs to be better at defensive pressures needs to be able to do have the lung capacity maybe to do two men's jobs because you know what pepe is a super talent he is not good at running backwards so let's make sure we cover that spot right so straight away then you're creating partnerships you're creating balance that's what we don't do so well we don't create balance you often hear me say things like who are we going to invest in what i'm really saying to you is if these are the five pillars we're going to invest in let's underpin them with the right talent and that's where statistics can really help. help. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's where you buy a player that's got top running ability, sprinting ability, does the most defensive pressures and, re- and ball recoveries and retains the ball. That's the player we're looking for. Who's the top five there? Okay, let's go and look at them and see which one suits us. Who's his agent? Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe on the left-hand side, the left eight, because we've got Martelli and Saka, who can both are two-way footballers, maybe we can have the left eight be a bit more creative, a bit more of a ball carrier, somebody that maybe doesn't have to defend, but really is passing to our talent. We're overloading left-hand side, so we want to pass her on that side. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's how you deploy people. That's how you create partnerships. That's how you create a team. We've all got our favourite teams running through our mind right now, and I'm telling you, look at them, look at the partnerships, look at the relationships, look at the technical, physical emotional balance of that team. And then you'll realize what makes a football team. Until you understand that, it doesn't matter what your database says. Mm. And you've got to have something to build from and implement. That's why I say it's a people issue, it's an implementation issue. And I, I love learning from stats. I learn from you, Elliot. I learn from, from Matt, and I love uh, reading them. Don't, don't learn them from me, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's a sure way to fuck um, yourself. <laughs> I really, I love it. I think, oh, it's great. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean you know this stuff because you need the other side of the game to understand how to implement it, to understand what makes game. Sometimes I talk about a player, and you, I can hear you go because you know the data on that player. And you know what? Sometimes you're right, you're really right. Then I would say, well, actually, could he be a Joel Linton? Is that player being totally misused? Is that player being asked to do certain things? Is that player being asked to play in a big space or a small space? Does that player have the capacity to do the job he's been asked to do? That comes back to football knowledge. It really does. It comes back to implementation, football knowledge, understanding what makes up a team. All of these things 
other things that used to matter so much to us before yeah, <laughs> before this situation. Before all this shit went down. Yeah, look. Uh, but it's absolutely it is what makes a difference from a successful team to a unsuccessful team that wastes a lot of money. Look, like anything, ideally you have to marry the two parts together. If you're looking at a player statistically and you're not marrying it with watching the player, scouting him with video or in person, like you're you're obviously making a massive mistake. Um, especially because a lot of stats, like defender stats and goalkeeper stats, are still in their infancy and, and not particularly effective. You know, there there are so many reasons you need to you need to connect all the dots. So I mean to your point, Clive, I think a club has to be joined up in a few areas. You need a director of football to say this is the type of football we're gonna play. This is the system of football we're gonna play. Hire a coach who agrees with that. And then build a squad to that plan. Then you need a recruitment team that can go and understand the resources you have and bring you a list of players that could build a team that suits that model using the resources you have. And then the director of football and the the coach and the, the recruitment guy and the stats guy all get together and watch these players and agree and disagree. And, and that's how it has to work. So, for example, if the director of football says we're going to be a 4-3-3 pressing team and you hire a coach who believes in a 4-3-3 pressing approach and you tell the anal- analytics team, hey, we, we're going to need a central midfielder who can go box to box and we need a winger who can cut inside on his, you know, on his stronger foot and, and, and beat a man off the dribble. And, we, you know, these are some of the comps, guys, we need. We need a, a Sadio Mane comp and we need a... a a Nabi Keita comp, or whatever the case may be, you know, I would, Virgil van Dyke, who, who comes to that, but you get my point. Then the analytics guy goes out, finds you some options, and says, these are some guys that fit in with our resource model, and it all ties together and works together well. And those are the three legs of the stool. I, I think, look, yeah. the, the agent side of things, I, I think at the top, top, top end of the market, analytics are stupid. And what I mean by that is, like, you don't need analytics to buy Ronaldo. You don't need analytics, I think, even to buy Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. You know, you might need them to decide if you want to buy Lucas Torreira. And that's where it gets harder. And one of the reasons I think people can point to analytics and say, oh, they screwed up. Look, they, they bought us Mohamed Elneny. When you're buying a 10 million pound player, it's really tricky to get that spot on. The odds that a 10 million pound player is going to turn into a superstar are pretty small and happens very infrequently. You buy Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and you get 26 goals a season because that's who he is and it's not rocket surgery or brain science. But... You know, you you buy a 10 million pound midfielder and you're kind of hoping for the upper end of his ceiling and sometimes that's just not going to happen because there's a reason they cost 10 million pounds. So, you know, should we have bought Christopher Nkunku instead of Pepe? He's a guy we talked about. He's a guy we knew about. He's a guy analytics loved. Should you buy Ian yep. Acho instead of Lacazette? That was a guy that analytics loved that hasn't really lived up to it yet. So, I mean, this can go both ways. At the end of the day... Like anything, analytics is a tool and you have to use it well. But but I think where, where my concern comes in, Tim, is I don't mind using agents to get deals done, especially at the top end of the market. Where analytics, I think, really mm-hmm. matters is focus. There are so many players. There are so many players. And what you hope analytics can do is just put two or three guys on your radar that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Where you go, you know what? Mm. We were looking at this 50 million pound guy and this guy's 12 million and he comps well to him and we'll look at him and you know what? He looks good and he's been playing under a coaching system that's similar to ours and we see the fit and, and you get an edge. Is that really where the edge is? Identification, right? Because like you still got to deal with agents. Yep. You still got to buy superstars. But like, and obviously when you're, when you're talking about analytics pointing you towards the guys at the lower end of the market. The odds that they're going to work out are lowered because you're not buying Messi's yep. and Ronaldo's. But but is that really the area where you want to make sure you're incorporating it? Is identifying just a few of those guys that might have been off your radar otherwise? 
Yeah, the the middle tier, I think, because like you say, um, the top tier, you don't really need analytics. I think Arsene Wenger said this himself once, right? He was saying like, there are three kind of tiers to our strategy. One is the academy. What uh, two is like, yeah, the kind of the mid tier player. I don't think he used that word. And then three, I, I think this was just after we'd signed Ozil. He said like, you don't need. He said you don't need your eye to sign Mesut Ozil. You need your wallet to sign Mesut well Ozil. Well said. Good turn of phrase, um, as always. Yeah. And yeah, 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 exactly. So I think you're right. I think it's that mid-tier player. Now, obviously, you still want you still want to apply it for your top-tier player as well. And here's the issue with Pepe. Like the issue with Pepe is not the quality of player that we've bought. We have clearly bought a top-quality player. It's just it's about fit and. I guess that this is the thing that underpins it all, right? About whether your your bottom, mid, and upper tier players all work is you have there has to be join up, right, between every area of your club. Um, you know, like you say, like as much as we're lauding Liverpool for nailing this, they got this horribly wrong for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, look, just look at some of the people they bought like Stuart Downing like when they went really money ball and they thought well if we buy Stuart Downing and Charlie Adam and we buy Andy Carroll Stuart Downing's really good at crossing and Andy Carroll's really good at heading and Charlie Adam takes a great corner and everyone will live happily ever after and was obviously that the money ball just... era though or was that the we've got yes. a lot of money because we sold Fernando Torres and now we want to buy a bunch of English junk no that was <laughs> that that was money ball that, yeah. that okay, was that, like that, then Stuart... that was bad <laughs> Yeah, Stuart Downing was like famously like one of their kind of money ball signings. So mm. they looked at the input and they went, ah, oh, he sticks loads of good crosses in and Andy Carroll really likes crosses. And ob- But they didn't think any wider than that. The, the reason they've got it right now is not just because, you know, of analytics and the right people and all of that. It's, it's mainly because they've got the right coach and they've got a coach with a very, very clear idea of how he wants to play, what he wants to do. And that's the important thing, right? Because, it, I mean, it's important to have all of it. But that, to me, is the most important bit. So having good analytics, I mean, it depends what you want to do. If you're like a team that fights relegation and you want to be like a mid-table club, I think good analytics can take you there. I think if you're a club who's, you know, mid-table and you want to go top six, maybe someone like Wolves, I think good analytics can take you there. If you're trying to win the league or you're trying to do something within the top four, it needs more than that because all of those teams broadly have good analytics have good scouting have like the best people money can buy and that that is where like you need everything um i mean i i guess it sounds kind of self-defeating to say you need to be good at everything to win the league or to win the champions league but you kind of do and this is where you're seeing a lot of the super clubs fall behind because they've got too much money tied up in a couple of individuals and therefore they can't prioritize other areas of the pitch. So they've got one or two superstar players, but the rest of it, that middle tier is shit. It is really not good enough. Like you look at Barcelona now that they put themselves, well, I say put themselves, it's probably an easy position to fall into. They dedicate so much resource to Messi mm. that they can't buy that top quality midfielder that they used to have to tie it all together. So now it really is just Messi. And, and Real Madrid, the same thing. They had to dedicate so much resource to Cristiano Ronaldo that everything around it fell apart. 
and that that's where so i guess what i'm saying is you're right that is where the analytics comes in that kind of that mid-tier signing that i guess in in our level that kind of 15 million pound signing like so for example pablo mari is is someone we're looking at at the moment we don't know how good he's going to be etc etc that that's the level of signing we're looking at right and that's where i would be looking at our analytics going yeah okay we can get this guy for a good price and because he does X, Y, Z, he will fit into our team because we want him to do X, Y, and Z or W, X, and Y or whatever you want him to do. And, you know, necessity means at the moment we're having we're probably having to pick up quite a few of these players. So so someone like Pablo Mari, that is where your the quality of your analytics and your scouting sits because you you're picking up a player for you know, we're going to pay from about like six million pounds if we make it permanent. Absolutely nothing for a 26 year old, nothing at all. Yeah. And and if he does, and if it's just, and like I've said a few times, Pablo Mari is not world-class. He is not going to be world-class. He's not. But if he fits into what Mikel Arteta wants to do, and if Mikel Arteta has said, I want a defender that does this, and they've gone to him, okay, we think we know a guy who can do that for a price we can afford. That's kind of where I see the future relationship. And I guess having a manager with a clear idea of how he wants to play, that will be the proof in the pudding for the quality of our recruitment and our analytics. Because I can understand how it was difficult to recruit for Unai Emery. And I guess I can understand that Unai Emery really relies on wide players and wide players who come inside. So I can kind of see why they went, okay, Pepe, he's probably an Unai Emery type wide player, but there wasn't a clear enough idea of how Emery wanted to play, which makes recruiting players difficult. Hopefully, Arteta's a bit clearer in this respect. And, and you know, so I, I think the marriage between those two things is, is just absolutely inescapable. I guess the, the problem, though, is wouldn't you say that everything you've just said is kind of an indictment of the way analytics were used at Arsenal in the sense that, like, isn't that middle 100%. tier? Yeah, isn't that middle tier sort of the where we've failed spectacularly? <laughs> yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. But That's again, like, like like I say though, it, it depends what the coaches were putting into that analytic. Like, what was Arsene Wenger saying? What was Unai Emery saying? What did were they giving a clear idea of the sort of player they wanted? We've said it ourselves about Xhaka, right? That from Wenger's public pronouncements he didn't have a clue what type of player Xhaka was so what did he tell his analytics guys when he said right I want a central midfielder probably a deep lying playmaker and they came up with Xhaka and like I guess it's where is the fault line there was that because they got him something he didn't want or as seems more likely to me because Wenger took so long to figure out what type of player Xhaka was is that because he wasn't clear enough about what he wanted? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I mean, the thing I don't like is gotcha arguments. You know, you have a lot of that in politics and everywhere. And, and you know, so you could look at Liverpool and say, aha, they used the analytics to get Nabi Keita. And, like, you know, that hasn't really worked out. I still think he's a fabulous player, and I think injuries have been a part of it. But, like, th- that's a gotcha argument in a way, right? Um, because they're, well, I was going to say going to win the title, <laughs> but they're not. Uh, they won the Champions League. Like, they're... You know, they're a spectacular team that has been built with being heavily informed by analytics. I think 
the the idea that analytics are good or bad is dumb. Every extra tool you have in your tool belt is good. And then if you use it right and integrate it properly, you work better. The idea that there's a magic bullet, that analytics are a holy grail is wrong. And the idea that analytics are overrated is wrong. They are an ex All they are is a short-term way of saying having access to more really good information that you use to make a decision. Why would that ever be bad? Why would it ever be bad to have more really good information? It's like if I handed you a menu at a restaurant and the only thing on the menu were the names that the restaurant gave it. Like, holy heavenly dish, happy fun eating, tasty noodle time. And you're like, you know what? Could I get some descriptions of these? No, no, just choose from the title. Like, you don't know what you're eating. No, well, if I can get a little more information, I can make a better choice. You can tell I haven't had lunch yet. Point is like, Analytics is just more information and you can use the information poorly and the information can be bad or use the information well and you can make good decisions. So, and you, by the way, and because it's still human beings and human beings are quite obviously not science, sometimes they don't work out because they're just human beings. Sometimes they're Ainsley Maitland-Niles and they say, I don't want to play right back. Ainsley, what are you doing? Clive, let's wrap this up because I, I want to finish the last few minutes with just a sort of a general question about um, how we're all coping in the moment and stuff, but do you have a final final thought on this and and whether uh, we're all doomed to Raul just paying agents more than they deserve and we're going to go down the shitter as a club saddled with super agent Drek or are we going to be okay? <laughs> final thought is basically that the article said that there's been a decreasing influence for Rosenfeld and I think that's a, that's a shame because I, I don't want to see data being used less, if you see what I mean. I want it to be seen be used more smartly and implemented differently. Um, he's going on to a great job, by the way, and I think it's a great idea from Wenger to, to level the playing field to make sure that more world foundations and teams and confederations have access to data. Then they can have their own coaches that can use the data to improve the standard and and that's what we all want for the world claim. So I think it's a very, very smart idea to employ somebody that he obviously knows. And obviously, he can do that job. And, you know, he's been at the club a lot of time. So things turn over, right? People turn over. So I'm not overly concerned. As long as we are having a model in place to implement whatever we find in, in a better way. And I think that starts from understanding how we play as we've We've all alluded to. But let's not go over the top on Liverpool, by the way. For every one album, you have a Lazar Markovic, right? Dea Lovren, you know, Ali Sissoko. Brendan Rodgers made 33 signings. And trust me, they all weren't great. You know, they all weren't great. And Moreno, these Mignolets, these were the people that used to have us laughing at them until they finally got a few right on the trot added it to a philosophy based on intensity and did some fantastic work with three strikers. And bingo, they're off and running. They sold a player which allowed them to cover up their mistakes financially and allowed them to hire two fantastic spinal players in Van Dyke and Allison, and they're on their way. As soon as you chip under that layer, we all saw what happened in the, in the Champions League when the, the second goalkeeper came in, not at the standard. We all saw what happened when Love let a play against Watford, not at the standard. So every, everybody makes mistakes, and we're all here trying to mitigate risk when we buy players, and data is part of that picture. Mm. I, uh, I, I think, and I could be wrong, I think we've done this one to, the, to completion. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we can move on now. Um, this was going to be like the first 25 minutes, and then we we're going to waffle for another 20 minutes and have a nice 45-minute podcast that we can put out. We're 54 minutes and 57 seconds, 58 seconds into it, and we've done one topic. We are truly, truly amazing at, at this stuff. No one's going nowhere. That's, no, that's no one's going anywhere, so we're going to keep <laughs> going. No Fuck it. we got more to talk about. Tim, one of the things— I'm not going to the pub because it's closed. No, don't, don't, do not go to the pub. I mean, you know— turn your house into a pub just start pouring booze and drinking it boom it's a pub um tim the uh the thing i want to ask you look you have spent most of your adult life following arsenal around the planet or at least around mm. at least around europe and uh going to brazil and watching the football there and and going to the games home and away i, I think is it fair to say i don't want to speak for you but is mm. inseparably you know interconnected to your life and and your identity and and woven into yep. who you are it's gone now and i'm curious like mm. how does this change it for you has it broken the spell has it made you realize you can be happy you know without doing that will you go back to doing it when it's back if, or is it is it challenging you to feel connected to yourself i mean this is all sort of touchy-feely wishy-washy stuff but i'm curious how yeah, yeah. the absence of something that for so many of us is so fundamental and for you in a very sort of daily reality way economic way uh, uh time allocation way is, is so connected how how is that changing for you um at the moment not at all um just because it's been just under two weeks so you know like it, it's a bit like pre-season <laughs> really it's you know basically three months of every year that you know, well, I guess it's two. Yeah, three months of every year, there's, there's no football. So it just kind of feels like a preseason, I, you know, and I imagine as time goes on, um, I'll miss it more and more. And, you know, hopefully in a few months it will be back. Um, but so at, at the moment, not really um, is the answer to that. And I've got other things going on in life. And obviously there are other things kind of uh, taking up my kind of psychological bandwidth. What I think is more interesting is the general question around that is, you know, because like football is like it's gone overkill, right? There is there is football on every single night. And even like a football obsessive like me, you know, like looks at the Saturday lunchtime kickoff and goes Crystal Palace v Bournemouth you couldn't pay me to watch that even though like if I sat and watched it, I'd probably enjoy it. But you know, the, the, there's just too much abundance. And and I wonder about a few things. I wonder whether, you know, basically what football has done really well is made itself like a 12 month concern when you haven't got the games, you've got transfers and stuff like that. Like football is content production. Now that's what it is. It is the content production. Like it's in the content business. And I was really interested to see like FIFA, for example, um, have put all their archives online. So like past world cup games and stuff like that. Mm. That's because they're panicking because football is content and is not generating new content at the moment. The advantage uh, they've got... I've got to stop you. We, we are doing our part, motherfuckers. We're well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Content. Okay, sorry. And, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what they're doing is that like a lot of, you know, they're, they're going, right, we've got to like reach into the archives now. Um, and you know, like uh, Guardian Football Weekly, their next episode, they're looking at like England Argentina from the 1986 World Cup. So, like a lot of places, and we might have to do this soon, uh, like like delving into the archives. But mm. it shows you the extent to which football is content production. And what's happened now is that the tap has been turned off unexpectedly, and um, 
that in itself i don't think will change people's relationship with it too much because when that tap's turned back on my are we all gonna have a shower um we're, we're gonna like absolutely we're, gonna, we're literally gonna strip naked and bathe ourselves in it i'm gonna spray the football but, all over my face it's gonna be all over me yes. it's gonna it's gonna be like that uh whatever that show is with the, all the football is happening it's all happening right now all the, the time that mitchell oh, and yeah, web look, the, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so there, there's kind of that element to it but i mean i tend to think that 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 would like i don't think people are gonna go do you know what actually i found over the last few months i can do other things with my time i think you know eventually people get back into the habit quite quickly what what what's interesting though maybe interesting isn't the right word is a what this is doing particularly in terms of people going to matches but people buying subscriptions and stuff like that people are losing money people are losing their livelihoods at the moment how can football come back in three months time four months time six months time nine months time whenever how can arsenal charge two grand for season tickets after mm. this i mean there are some there are you know there are a lot of people who won't be that affected by this but but most people are in one way or another and we're in for like some kind of recession it's just a question of the magnitude how can premier league clubs keep charging 50 60 pounds for tickets after this and once you've also taken that drug away from people they're kind of going to go, well, actually, I've done without this for three months. And now, like, I've either lost my job or I'm a freelancer in the gig economy or something. And I lost three months of work. So I genuinely cannot afford this anymore. Like, what what do we do once the habit is broken and the economy is is not there? And I think that one of the things that will happen is that a lot of what remains of this season, I think, will be played behind closed doors because I think we're in for probably a phased, um, you know, once things are safe enough to kind of ramp up like social interaction again, that will be phased. There is no way we are going from lockdown to, yeah, everyone can just start going to 60, 50,000 stadiums, 20,000 stadiums again. Like that's not going to happen going to have to be phased which is why i think a lot of games particularly from this season will end up being played behind closed doors and that will be uh, geared by broadcasters who and, and i understand that because they paid for matches that aren't happening and they want what they've paid for and i and i get that and so what's going to happen quite i think um quite obviously is Big matches, decisive matches are going to take place behind closed doors. Let me tell you why a lot of people have season tickets. A lot of people who have season tickets or who hoard away credits, they don't go to all the games. That's how it used to be like 20, 30, 40 years ago. Season ticket holders were rare. Most people didn't have them because most people don't go to all the games. The reason people have them now is because they want to be sure that when the big game happens, that they can be there. So they have their season ticket and half the time the seats are either empty or they move it on, but they want it because when, you know, Arsenal play Barcelona, they want their seat. And that's why people hoard away credits. They hoard away credits. They hoard away credits. They don't go because when it comes to Tottenham away, they want their ticket. Or when it comes to the cup final, which is decided on away credits, they want their cup final ticket. That's why a lot of people have season tickets um, and, and lots of away credits. That's just the reality of it. This season, 
quite a lot of decisive games, I think, are going to be played behind closed doors. So you've got another angle there where people who have only got season tickets because they want to go to the big games, Mm. all of a sudden they're not going to be able to go to the big games. So you're breaking the habit, you're breaking the economy, and you're, you're breaking that kind of at least I know I get the cup final ticket at the end of the year. And I, I think that's a really, really interesting cocktail. And I'm, I'm really, really curious to see where all of this goes. And just to kind of close off this um, final thought, how whatever happens now, however they decide to end this season and to begin the next and blah, 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 is going to be totally revolutionary. It's going to be something we have never, ever seen before. And, you know, even if, if we do, like I'm attracted to the idea that you came up with, like the March Madness style, like mm. let's fucking just do it all in a month and have a big tournament. And I think they'll do something close to that all behind closed doors. It's going to be revolutionary. It's going to be something we've never seen before. And a big part of football and the attraction of it is routine. And that routine is 100% broken for the next few years. Like the season's going to change. The structure's going to change. We're going to see seasons begin and end in ways that they have never in history ended and begun. And I'm really interested to see how all of that affects all of our interaction with football. That is comprehensive, intelligent, and thoughtful. I am just going to ask Clive to build on it rather than ruining it with my inanities. Clive? He wasn't ready. He's on mute because he thought I was going to build on it with my inanities. You broke up. up Uh, All right, sure. Blame my internet. But but the moral of the story is, (laughs) go for it. Your your turn. <laughs> no, my for for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older than Tim, so I've been going, <laughs> I've been going to football since 1977 live, and I've always had a, a varied view of the game. So I played a lot of the time as well. So for me, it's not just watching, it's playing and being involved in watching different levels of football, from youth football to you know non-league football right now. So for me, nothing's happening. So it's not just been about Arsenal for me. It never has been, you know. Um, you know, I, I've, I've watched other clubs, you know, in Scotland. You know, I've travelled abroad to watch a game like Tim has. And I watched, you know, I've watched under-10s right the way through to under-18s and obviously step forward football now where I help a club. So football's all-encompassing to me. It's a big part of my life and understanding the game and learning the game. So that's, that doesn't stop. You can still learn, and I'm still doing that right now. I do think um, it's a. Uh, it's. I think football will change. I posted a video out on the 1982. I think it was um, Brazil v Italy when Brazil lost three two and Paolo Rossi stole the game, right? And um, and to me, that's when football came into the light. You know, it was a major time, and then we started to see players move around Europe and players like Falcao end up in Italy and then we progressed to the 1990 World Cup and then we really started to see global movement and then obviously the Premier League came along and it changed again and that Premier League was really participated by Anfield 89, a live audience, seeing something like that impacted the country and the country, the broadcasters realised that we could sustain something a little bit more constant a little bit more um, all-encompassing and we've developed into where we are right now. Well, we are exhausted. We are exhausted by a lot of football. 
you know, and it's, it's almost too much of our lives. So we're having a breather. But when we come back, we have a chance for change. And change is no bad thing. You know, having the opportunity to break those normalcies, to break those normal reactions, to break how the game has been. People like the slice of the pie that they have, so they hold on to it. And that doesn't allow change. Well, you know what? Now we're all open to change. How can we protect the game? How can we protect the structures that we have? How can we protect our revenues? And that's from TV. There's a whole podcast on Flantels on this, Elliot, by the way. Mm-hmm. But that's on TV. That's on how we interact with the fan, how we stream. There's a discussion in Germany about streaming all the games later in the year, live to everybody, which allows people to stay at home and watch the games. So how football is used as a tool to bring balance back to our lives is really, really key. And for me, the game is about a sense of community. It, It always has been. It's always been about linking myself to something that I like, linking myself to a club and a fan base that I like. Mm. I've said this before on a podcast with people that when I was younger that looked like me, that I wasn't the only black person in the stadium. Mm. People, this is what I've always done. So football at the lower levels, at the youth level, at the non-league level, it's all about community. And Arsenal is just a bigger version of that. And so football gives us that. It gives us our conversation. It gives us our pillar when we are outside of our work and family lives. And I don't think that's going to change. It just may look a bit different. We may we may align ourselves to it slightly differently. So I used to be <laughs> I used to be a home and away I liked him for about five or six years. Mm. And then my life changed. And then things changed and priorities changed. And I decided to support my son's career and so I do slightly other different things, but then still stay with Arsenal, but learn, but relearn the game. So I can end up on a podcast like this, relearn the game, learn about how to build a player, learn about how to coach a team, learn about how to implement talent, spot talent. And so all of this is still there. It's still a big part of who I am. It will not change. And, I, and most people listening to the podcast, it will not change for them. And many of them are counting the hours away. And I don't see a disconnection. I don't see fear. But what needs to happen is that it needs to be realistic about we how we re-implement football back into our lives. It can't be a switch. It won't be a switch. And that's going to need some maturity. That's going to need some smart TV decisions about how this is done. And it's going to be so interesting to see how we manage this problem going forward. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say is I think the appetite will come back uh, ferociously uh, I think that in a way if anything maybe we were getting as you said there was too much football and you know it was getting to the point where you're like eh, you know what I could always just look at the goal clips on arsenalist.com and yada I mean I can't do that because I have to rewatch every freaking game with you Clyde but um, you know the the appetite will come back but what happens economically in terms of you know as, as Tim said you know how much money do people have to what extent do people rethink their discretionary spending? Where will the markets be? Where will the savings be? Where, you know, how well off will people be? How much wealth will there be in society? Will clubs have to slash prices? Will the price of players come? I mean, the whole market could get reset by this. And you know, suddenly, you know, you could be saying, "Well, we were going to sell Aubameyang this summer, but now the most anyone's willing to pay for a player is ten million pounds because teams are having to charge a third of what they were going to for season tickets, and TV companies are asking for." 
you know, a reset on advertising costs or whatever the case is. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of waffling and speculating here, but I think, I think the fan behavior will return in terms of interest, but it's going to be up to those who run the game to understand how to adjust the dials to fit whatever the new reality looks like when this is over, because economically the reality is going to look different for a while. And if they think they can just say, all right, it's back on. Everybody spend the same amount. Everybody show up at the same number of games. Everybody act like this never happened. I don't know if that can happen. I don't know if that's realistic. And we will see, but I certainly think the interest will still be there. I think we should leave it there an hour and 10 minutes in. Uh, you know, maybe went a bit big on the stats DNA thing and, and we'll curtail the, the part of the conversation that probably has a lot more uh, uh, elements to it. But my guess is that we're going to be talking about this for a long time. So I think that's a good time to leave it there, Tim. I certainly appreciate your your thoughts on that and, and thanks for spending some of your, your um, social isolation with us. <laughs> my pleasure as always. Clive, I, I, I never want to be distant from you, but uh, certainly having your, your wonderful baritone in my ears bridges the gap. Thank you for being here. No worries, my friend. Thank you very much. So Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto, Clive's on Twitter. It's Clive PAFC. Uh, uh, Paul certainly sends his love and his and his best wishes to everybody, as does Scott. They will be back on a pod in the future. My name's Elliot Smith. You should still be blocking me. If you're not, what are you doing? Get to it. Block me at Yankee Gunner. Um, just a special thanks to everybody joining us and, and sharing the uh, the time together. I hope you're hanging in there, and I hope uh, as things progress, that you uh, stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane, stay upbeat, and that we can all be there for one another. So, in any event, we'll leave it there. We will definitely have another podcast coming up uh, next week, assuming that there's a next week, which I assume there will be. So, <laughs> don't want to undermine my entire optimism bit there with the whole if there's a next week. That did no good, Elliot. Don't do that one. I'll fix it in post. In any event, we love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 20, COVID 19. <laughs> 